Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. And we are here uh, to talk about recruiting class rankings. The final 2021 Top 25 uh, was released yesterday as we record this. It was released September 8th, so you can check it out in its full over at BaseballAmerica.com. And Joe and I are going to dive into into those rankings and, uh, you know, just kind of talk about some of these incoming classes here. So always, always an exciting time to, to be able to look at the newcomers that have made it to campus. And that is what we are going to do today on the Baseball America College podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, here we are. Uh, we're past Labor Day. Players are on, or kids are on campus and in school. Players are on campus. Folks are, are starting fall practice and recruiting rankings have been released. It is it is that time of year, and I uh, I always get really excited about doing this. I, I guess that's a good thing since I, I am the one that, that spreads this every year. Uh, but this is one of my uh, more more favorite projects to be able to to dig into the the newcomers and you know just really kind of start educating myself about uh, what what teams are going to look like. I mean, I, I start this process like a year in advance in advance of signing day. Um, and, and we take the, that's when we first start ranking the classes and sometimes, you know, we get some mid-season updates leading up to this final one, but those all include players that, that might get drafted. And, you know, we all know that that's a reality of college baseball. Uh, but now we get to just focus on the players who are in college and will make an impact on these programs for the next one, two, three, maybe four years. And so it's, it's, it's very exciting to see all of that come, come together and, and then uh, kind of get released out into the wild in, in the form of these recruiting class rankings. You mentioned that, uh, you know, it's one of your most favorite projects and uh, you said that's a good thing. And I agree. I feel like this would be a specific slog if you really did not uh, enjoy this aspect of it, because it, I, every year when you put these out and I don't just say this to blow smoke, I mean, I truly mean it when I say that you know, I'm impressed just the, the level of, of depth you have to go to because, okay, sure, there maybe there's a class or two that really stand above the rest and like, okay, there's your one and your two, but then you still have to rank 23 more of them. And at some point, as you get further down, you know, you've got fewer and fewer BA 500 prospects. And so, you know, it's, you know, it just becomes a little bit more of a game of splitting hairs. And I think inherent in that is the fact that, you know, ultimately you're ranking a lot of unknowns, you know, we don't know what any of these kids are going to do. Um, you know, the history is littered with, you know, BA 500 prospects that don't work out and, and relatively unheralded prospects who become all Americans. And so, um, that's the, the beauty of it, but, um, yeah, this is a, you know, having, seeing the back end of all this work that goes into it, like I come away impressed every year. Um, and I think it's a great roadmap if you're a college baseball fan, who's a little more casual, you know, obviously the hardcore college baseball fans, especially of the SEC programs are well aware of these kids already and have been tracking them for years. But if you're more of a little, little bit of a casual observer, I think this is reading these uh, recruiting rankings are a good entree into 
the next class of kids who are going to come in and, and try to have an impact right away. And so, you know, when you combine it with some of the other stuff we're going to be doing coming up in the next few weeks, as you mentioned, it, it fall coming up here and being upon us, you know, the combination of this, you know, an update we're going to do to our transfer rankings with our top 100 transfers who are coming in to college baseball in 2022 or changing places in college baseball in 2022. Um, and some of the other little pieces we're going to have coming previewing different individual teams for the fall. Um, you know, what we're trying to do here with all this is, is create like a nice little uh, sampling platter for you to, to start to, to prime the pump a little bit for ultimately the 2022 season. Yeah. And, and you're talking about how, you know, if you're really into it, you've been tracking your team's recruiting class and like that, it's probably true, but yeah, I bet you haven't been tracking your opponents. So, you know, if you, uh, if you are into that, uh, or if you just want to know more generally about who the top freshmen are in college baseball, I guess this is, this is kind of the place to, uh, to go to for that. Uh, and if you really want to dig into it, you can, I mean, it's like 12,000 words, but it's there for you. So, um, you know, I, it, it'll, it'll take a little bit to, to read through, but, but hopefully you know, we, we are able to cover it in somewhat of a comprehensive manner uh, that I don't think you can find anywhere else um, that that's like that. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my pitch for, for going to going over to baseballamerica.com and reading the, the top 25 after we break them down here. And since I guess Joe brought it up, let's just touch on a little bit of housekeeping before we dive into the top 25. Uh, like he mentioned, the, the transfer rankings uh, will be uh, updated within the next uh, little bit here, and those will be over there on the website, as well as last year we debuted a series that we called Five Questions, and you know we took a, each individual team, five questions they were facing this fall and, and looking ahead to, to next season and kind of tried to get into answering those and, and you know, how how things might start shaping up for for those teams so we're we're gonna run that back this year and uh, again look for that probably starting in the uh the back half of september gotta let some of these teams get a little bit of fall going so that we might be able to suss out some of these answers but uh before too long we'll we'll be able to uh to get into that as well and there will be more recruiting coverage content uh as i go conference by conference and team by team uh, for, you know, the, the biggest conferences in college baseball. So all of that to come over at baseballamerica.com. An exciting time. Yes, it's the fall and not actually college baseball season, but it's the, it's the, it's still the season, you know, the, the season never really ends if you don't want it to. And uh, here at baseballamerica.com, we don't want it to. So we've, uh, we've got plenty, plenty to come here and uh, it's a good time to, uh, to subscribe if you're interested in any of that or the pro side as uh, we, we start uh, end of season type of, uh, of prospect coverage over uh, the, the individual professional leagues and, and going team by team, of course, building towards the, the prospect handbook. There's definitely something about, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, this time of year and kind of all that comes with it. I don't know about you, but it, it starts, this is, well, obviously the season is probably mine and yours favorite time of year and actually having the start of the season and what have you, but this kind of is a, a close second for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, you start to get that, that chill in the air. I, I, I recently was on a trip. I went out to, to Colorado for a family thing and, and there was a little chill in the air there, obviously up in the mountains. 
so it kind of got me ready for fall. And then of course I get slapped in the face by coming back here to North Carolina and it's wet and warm and all that kind of stuff because fall is, is not yet here uh, in North Carolina. So that was a little bit of a reality check, but I say all that to say, you know, there, there is something about this time of year. It starts to get a little bit cooler outside. Football is back, you know, college, college football for me in particular, uh, is this, and it's exciting time for me. So that that's back and going. So it does feel like, uh, we're definitely going through a changing of a, of a season here. And in many ways with the coverage we do this fall, you, you say that the season never truly ends. And I think that's, that's more true now than it, than it has ever been um, with, with college baseball being as talented as it is now, the recruiting rankings take on even more importance uh, transfers uh, being so prominent in college baseball this year and probably moving forward means that's going to be another prominent piece. And so um, I think college baseball, while it doesn't have maybe, the type of ecosystem around it that college football does in terms of year-round content, um, it too has grown in that in that same way. And I think it's only going to be more true as time goes on. All right. So let's dive into these, this top 25, which is top by number one, UCLA. This is the first time we've been ranking recruiting classes at Baseball America for 22 years now. This is the first time UCLA has been number one. Uh, which on itself, like on, on its own, is a surprise. This is also the first time in since 2010 that a school from the West Coast has had the number one recruiting class. Uh, the last one was Stanford in 2010. So it's been a while. Uh, pretty much every recruiting class since that Stanford class that was the number one class in the country was in the SEC. They had a nine-year streak. Um, Miami snapped that last year. And now UCLA is the first one to take it out of the Southeast entirely. So that, that is interesting. And then further, what's interesting is the actual way that this class came together. UCLA is, are, they, they just recruit really well out there. John Savage recruits really well as a head coach. Bryant Ward, UCLA's recruiting coordinator, has done a really good job since he uh, took over th that job in Westwood. So that's all, you know, it's not abnormal that UCLA would have a really good recruiting class. But what's interesting about this class is that so many of these players at the top of the class said no to the draft. A couple of them pulled their names out of the draft formally, but before the event began, which, you know, it happens here and there. But to get two players from the same class to do it. Uh, going to the same school that that's very rare, no matter what part of the country we're talking about, especially so on the West coast. And then you had a couple other players that after the first night of the draft, which this year was just 36 picks um, said, we're done. You didn't pick us. We're, we're not, we're not going to be a, we're not going. Uh, and you see that happen now and again, but again, just so many players from this UCLA class made it clear that they weren't signable or that they, they completely removed themselves from the process that UCLA wasn't necessarily sweating a ton going down to the signing deadline, just because it, so many of them had, had been removed from, from the process altogether uh, that obviously there's, there's still some, uh, some concern until the, the deadline does pass for, for any coaching staff and UCLA did lose one commit in the draft, but they were able to hold this class together so well. It was the number three class 
after the sign-in period last fall. And, you know, it, it, it because they held together so well, they're, they rise and uh, here they are at number one. The thing with UCLA that, that strikes me kind of from an outsider's view, because I'm not in these recruiting classes that the way that the way that you are, is that they, they just seem to do a really good job of getting their guys. And every coaching staff is going to say that, like, we just want our guys. But, you know, they, they have all different types of recruiting classes, like smaller recruiting classes and top heavy recruiting classes and recruiting classes that are more about depth and quality. And, but they're always highly ranked. Um, and they're, they're typically get the production they're looking for out of them. All you have to do is look at the, the recent track record for UCLA. And, and obviously there's a larger discussion about UCLA to be had that I'm sure we'll have as, as the season approaches where you know, this program that hadn't been to Omaha since 2013, and they've had opportunities to get back to that stage and have fallen short of it. So, uh, the program continues to kind of, uh, pace along at, at, at a steady clip here and continues to be to show all of the signs of, of being a, a program that is one of the better ones in the sport right now. And it just doesn't necessarily have the results that you might think they would have based on that. And I'm sure it's a point of frustration inside those walls uh, at UCLA, but um, a number one recruiting class, certainly uh, not a bad thing to continue to, to build towards that, but it's, you know, it's, I don't think, you know, you mentioned John Savage being a, and, and the staff, recruiting really well at UCLA, but I, I feel like maybe it's just because of the results and this has not been a team that's been on the, the, the biggest stage in college baseball in a little while. Maybe that's the reason, but it, it does feel like this is a program that doesn't really get thought of in that same way as a recruiting juggernaut. I think people would, obviously Vanderbilt and then Florida, I think people would kind of associate with recruiting juggernauts and even, you know, even a brand like Miami, the number one class from last year, I think people, because of that brand identity might look at that that way. Yeah, I think it's a West Coast thing that, they're yeah. just not being thought of that way. Yeah, but it's but it I, you know to your point, I think they, they should be considered that way because the, the proof is in the pudding there. And and like I said, like you know this is a program that just every year they just kind of quietly get most of the best players who they are going to get on the West Coast. You know they're obviously they're not typically getting the upper crust guys, but to your point, they they do get guys here and there that sh- I don't want to say should because it's obviously an ind- individual choice, but should in most cases be in pro baseball. They, 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 they get those guys too periodically. And that's obviously, I think we've seen time and again, when you're recruiting at the high end, you, you have to find ways to, to get those kind of guys every, every so often. I, I guess the question I would have for you is you, as you started to put this together, I, I know UCLA was an obvious winner, quote unquote, coming out of the draft for the reasons you articulated. Um, was it at that point? Uh, that they kind of felt like the number one recruiting class for you. Obviously, I'm sure you didn't just put it in pin. You, you know, you had to consider these things. But how easy or difficult was the decision for UCLA at one? Did you come into this process kind of make, assuming they would be one? What was kind of the, um, you know, how, how did that shape up as, as time went on? In the immediate aftermath of the draft, I thought there were four classes that had a case to be number one. You had UCLA. You had Florida, which winds up, and these four wound up being the top four. You had Florida, which winds up at number two. Um, it's a really strong, deep class. It was the number one class on signing day. Uh, they did, however, see their top or three. They saw three players drafted in the first 30 picks out of their class. So you kind of lopped the very top end of Florida off. Otherwise, they did a good job uh, in terms of retaining the rest of the class. Uh, you had Vanderbilt, which, you know, consistently deep, good. We know how Vanderbilt recruits. Um, 
they also did lose a couple um, through the draft process. And then Arkansas was kind of the fourth of the group, but they wound up with Peyton Stovall, who is the second highest player not to not to be picked out of the 500 um, from prep level uh, or, or that's on camp. You know, Kamar Rocker kind of throws off how I have to talk about that, but he was the second highest ranked high school prospect that that made it to to campus and so that's a a really good headliner and there was a time that i thought braylon bishop might not sign uh that was a little unclear in the immediate aftermath he said that he wasn't going to sign uh that that he was going to go to fayetteville and then the tweet got deleted and uh ultimately braylon bishop did sign and that kind of made arkansas the clear four of the group um but they uh they have a good good class as well. And so if you then, once the signing deadline passed, look at it and say, at that point, I think it kind of became, well, it's either UCLA or Florida. And, you know, I talk to people, I look at it. And uh, ultimately, I think that UCLA just had a little more high end talent um, than, uh, than Florida. Florida. I, I think Florida's class, I think it's, bigger and therefore it runs a little deeper in certain ways but ucla's just like premium talent is what pushed it over the top uh to number one i mean you're talking about thatcher heard uh who is who is a top 50 player in the ba 500 and and it's important to remember that the ba 500 includes all players who obviously wouldn't be a part of recruiting rankings, but Thatcher Hurd was a top 50 prospect uh, in the draft class. They have Gage Jump, who's another pitcher that's a top 100 prospect. Malachi Knight, um, an outstanding outfielder, was a top 100 prospect. And then the two players who removed themselves from draft consideration, Nick McClain, he's the younger bro- youngest brother of Matt McClain, uh, he's another outfielder and shortstop Cody Schreier. I think McLean before he removed himself from the draft, and then we had to remove them from the 500 because the 500 is only for draftable players. Um, Nick was a top 100 player, and Schreier was just outside the top 100. So you're looking at two more players that we consider to be top 125 prospects in the draft. And at this point, I've named like five, six of those guys, I guess. So that, that's what we're talking about here with, with this UCLA class. And it runs deeper than that. You're, you know, you're running into a, a whole lot of really good pitchers, um, some, some good uh, position players that didn't quite make the 500. And it's, uh, so, so that kind of is what, what pushed it over the top at UCLA. And I guess this is now, I, I should have mentioned this before, but it's as good a time as any. This is just ranking... Uh, incoming freshmen and junior college transfers, four-year transfers do not count towards our rankings. And I believe that's going to be my final decision. Like this year, I kind of like still a little bit unclear how to handle that um, just in terms of the rule change being so fresh. But I think that I'm leaning towards never including four-year transfers uh, just because you know, I start ranking these this class these classes on signing day at, at a time when we don't know who 
who's going to be available in the transfer portal. So to have gone through and like done all of the process and like, these are the classes. And then suddenly in June, when players start transferring uh, to like throw all that, that this exercise doesn't need. Uh, so importantly, this is just the, the, the newcomers uh, from, from the prep ranks and the junior college ranks. And I don't think that really affects any, you know, either Florida or, or UCLA, but, you know, Arkansas, if you could include Jace Barhoffen into it, um, you know, that, uh, that, that would be a little bit of a different story perhaps. Uh, but if we're, we're just looking at the, uh, the, the freshman and the junior college transfers here. Yeah. Arkansas also Michael Turner, Kent state catcher. Uh, uh, nice, yes. nice yes. piece there. Um, obviously Burleson's the, 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 headline name there but but another nice piece for Arkansas they, they typically play well in the in the portal but I think that's the right I mean just as a it, while we're here like I think that's the right decision in terms of not including the four-year transfers for the reasons you articulated but also um the, the teams at the top I mean Arkansas is a little bit of an exception where they, they they played pretty heavily in the transfer now it didn't all work out they had some of their guys sign last year in 2020 but they play in the portal quite a bit um but most of the teams we're talking about in this top section especially these the teams we have one, two, and three, they're not really the types of programs that are playing a, a ton in the transfer portal. So it's, it's just ultimately, I think you're going to be talking about teams in the back half of the 25, which to your point is just going to make this already difficult exercise even, even more so. And how do you value a highly ranked kid who went to campus and didn't work out at his first stop? Well, how do you, how do you value that player uh, versus, versus others? So that's, I think that's. Just- and look, I already struggle with junior college players. Like, Okay, right. if you get a really good junior college player, that's an impact for one year. Mm-hmm. Uh, max, you're looking at two. Obviously, right now with everyone having the extra year, some some of it is longer than that. But ordinarily, you're looking at one, maybe two years versus um, at least two. You know, there are draft eligible sophomores out there, but usually three, maybe four years. And how do you value a junior college player for, who could make an immediate impact anyway? So it, it's that's already hard. And then if I had to throw grad transfers or, you know, full on four year transfers into the mix, it, uh, it, it, it gets complicated pretty quickly. So at least for now though, we're, we're, we're sticking with the way that we've been doing it. And, and I do think this is probably the way uh, we're, we're going to do this going forward as well. And just have a separate ranking for, for transfer classes. One program that is playing a lot in the transfer portal that also has a top five recruiting class is Tennessee. Like that's just a, such an interesting team for me in 2022, because it, it, I think you and I have both gone back and forth on what to expect from Tennessee in 2022, because like they, they do have a good number of guys leaving. They also have a really intriguing group of players returning and they, they got a few guys who could have moved on as, you know, guys who have already been in the program for four or five years that chose to come back and, now they're bringing in some some really impressive transfer talent, and here they are with a top five recruiting class. And it sounds like just reading your write up on it, there are a number of guys. Some of these guys are a little more projectable, are going to take some time, but there are some high end talents here that appear ready to have roles right out of the gate. And so, you know, it, it, the whole Tennessee project here under Tony Vitello is fascinating. But it, I mean, this is when we talk about how difficult it is to pull yourself up by your bootstraps in the SEC because everyone is recruiting at a high level, just about everyone anyway. 
but this is how you do it. I mean, this is this is the process. This is Tennessee going through that process of, of being a program that was down for for so long. And little by little, you know, it starts with the baby steps they took in, in 2018 and 2019. And, and now it feels like this is a program full on, you know, kind of full speed ahead. The train is, is really moving here. Um, with this top five class, I would put, you know, just as a, a segue to maybe another team here, but Alabama is kind of in that same process. They're not as far along as Tennessee, but here they are with a top 10 class. And so we talk about how difficult life is in the SEC, but like sitting right here before us are two programs in Tennessee and Alabama that appear to be doing all of the right things to actually pull off what is one of the more difficult tasks in college baseball. Yeah. And, you know, you can look, Auburn went through this before they landed a top 10 class at like, God, it's, 18 or 19 I think it was 19 was their top 10 class and um maybe it was 18 though regardless they they hit the recruiting hard when Butch Thompson got there uh and it paid off with the, the college world series appearance um you know Tennessee now had the world series appearance and is is getting this top five class off the back of it um really without you know you have to remember in in baseball, you're not going to see the benefit necessarily from reaching the College World Series for another at least a year and probably two years to truly show up in recruiting. Like this group committed to Tony Vitello before he showed that, look, we can get to we can get back to the World Series. That, to use one of Joe's favorite terms, that proof of concept, it wasn't there yet. And now it is. Um, but th- this class, they when they signed it, uh, they had Brady House in it, and obviously he went on to be a first-round pick to the Nationals and um, was one of the best high school players in the country. And I, I remember, like, looking at it in the fall and thinking, well, okay, like, Brady House makes this really interesting, but, like, he's probably not going to make it. Well, it still wound up being a really interesting class, even without him. Maddox Bruns um, is the highest-ranked player in it. He was number 49 in the BA 500. Again, I mean, there aren't many players ranked ahead of him that made it to campus. So in, in him, um, you know, they have this big arm right-hander that has a fastball that touches a hundred and, you know, should be able to make a pretty immediate impact. And, and you start putting that with, you know, you saw what Blake Tidwell did as a freshman last year under Frank Anderson's tutelage on the mound. Like, I mean, you start stacking these guys together and that's how you, you know, build pitching staffs and rebuild pitching staffs and, and, you know, like they, they do, they got some, they got some innings that, that they have to go around. And if Maddox Bruns uh, or Burns rather can, um, can get into it uh, as a, as a freshman, I mean, that would be, that would be very, very big for them. And they also got uh, significantly Seth Stevenson, uh, who's a junior college transfer. He, um, you know, he can come in and uh, you know, he, he has just incredible speed. Uh, he and Ryan Spikes both can kind of play up the middle. Um, and, and so those are two really important recruits as well. So, yeah, I Tennessee has been getting after it, recruiting under Vitello. I mean, that's part of the reason why he got this job. It's because he's known as, as being such an aggressive recruiter uh, who really wants to get out there. And, like, I mean, in his old job as, as recruiting coordinator, obviously he had to get out there and, and get after it. But he has continued that as a head coach. And I think one thing that you'll notice here with most of the classes in the top five, um, Vanderbilt's a little bit different, not that Tim Corbin doesn't hit the trail, uh, but 
maybe a little bit less than some of the other head coaches, but you know, John Savage, very active in recruiting. Kevin O'Sullivan and Tony Vitello are, are out there all the time. And um, Dave Van Horn really gets after it too, especially. Uh, so I having a head coach that is as invested in the process as those guys are, and, and again, Tim Corbin is, is pretty heavily out there as well, I, They it, it just means so much for a program. You only have three coaches that can recruit in college baseball with the only the three full-time coaches can get out there. And, you know, so if you're a head coach and you're, you're not going out there, I mean, that's fine. That, that model can work, but you got to have, if, if you are going to be involved, I, I just think that's such a, such a big advantage to, uh, to the whole process. And obviously I'm not a coach. I don't know everyone has their, their different things that they've got to, you know, get into and running a program is not easy and delegation, all the rest of it. But those guys are really invested and, and, and you're seeing it pay off here. Uh, I want to touch on Alabama a little bit here in a second uh, with some of these other teams that maybe are a little less blue bloody than uh, what we've seen here so far in the top five. Uh, but first check this out. All right, Joe, you mentioned Alabama before we, uh, before I, I, I made us take that, that little break there. Um, this is Alabama's first top 10 class since 2012. They had a couple top 15 classes. I just really like this class from what they're bringing in on the mound. It, it's not a very heavy class in terms of position players, and I think that's okay in the immediate. Uh, they needed the help on the mound more than, than the – they just return more players positionally uh, and they went out and they got some really good, um, r- really good arms here. You're, you're looking at like Luke Holman uh, and Brandon Clark, just these and, and Ben Hess, all three of them just really big bodied guys who are going to, you know, be able to, to run the, their fastballs up pretty high. And so I, I just, I'm excited for that. And then at, from a position player standpoint, they, they get Camden Hayslip, who is actually their top ranked recruit. Um, again, just big physical, uh, could be a center fielder for them, but, but certainly going to find somewhere to play in, in the outfield and uh, a, a great left-handed powerful bat to, uh, to add to the lineup. So yeah, it's uh, things are happening there in Tuscaloosa. Recruiting in the sec is insane. Um, when you have four of the top five classes nationally all coming from the SEC, obviously, um, you know, I, I, everything is a little relative there, but you need to have, you just need to stack the premium talent to be able to compete. And I think more importantly than looking at like, well, is Alabama the fifth best recruiting class in the SEC or, you know, whatever, that's all fine. I, I, I think the the more important thing is for any of these SEC schools is just, you have to keep bringing in the premium talent. Uh, you have to keep stacking it and, you know, you can develop other pieces, but it, more importantly than having it, than, than say Ole Miss, which is number 25 in, in the top 25 and therefore is like the 10th or 11th best SEC recruiting class. I mean, you can look at that one of two ways, but, but the way I look at it is just that you got to just keep stacking the premium talent and, you know, good things will come. Everything's a little cyclical. If you take a big class, 
this year you probably can't take a big class next year uh but as long as you keep stacking premium guys year after year uh i you're gonna be fine as an sec school it's also a good reminder just by the way to uh, fans listening who are a little bit uninitiated to the, to the process is that like yes I, I i let me see i'll put it this way and maybe you'll disagree with this assessment but being high in a recruiting ranking is obviously a, a good thing it doesn't take a you know, a road scholar to, to suss that out, but, um, but being lower, especially within like, when you talk about in the sec being lower in the pecking order, not necessarily, um, an indictment of the recruiting class, because you mentioned the class size is also a thing. It's also class need, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a team that's in a certain cycle where you've got a lot returning and you will have a lot returning the next couple of years, you can maybe take some, some projects or, you know, things like that. Some, some guys who aren't maybe necessarily that the, um, the guys who are very uh, present in their in the rankings and are, and are very clearly going to be contributors in year one. So while it, it may be an indictment, I'm saying I'm not saying it's not, but um, I just don't think it's it's necessarily any reason to make any assumptions about the recruiting prowess of the staff. It could just be circumstantial um, that, that, that this year ends up being a lighter year from a recruiting standpoint. So I think that's a I think that's a good distinction to make there. Um, that it's a little bit more nuanced than than that. Um, There's also uh, just quickly the in football, which is I think where most people are most familiar with recruiting rankings from. There's a hard cap; you can only sign 25 players. Uh, that's that's an actual rule. So the max anyone is signing in any given year is 25. There's no such rule in baseball. A lot of the best classes wind up really being very big. I do my best not to penalize schools that take smaller classes in any given year. Uh, UCLA often has a pretty small class compared to some of the other classes at the top of the rankings. Not as true this year. Um, they had, they had one of the highest, most, they had some of the, or few schools had more draftees than UCLA did this year. So they had a lot of holes to fill. But I try not to just let the small classes slip to the bottom just on the base basis of them being small. But obviously, the more players you get, the more bites of the apple you have. And so bigger classes tend to fare better in the rankings. That's just one of the unfortunate things that I haven't been able to figure out how to fix yet. Uh, and I don't know that it is fixable. But uh, so, yes, if you have a smaller class, I try hard not to let that really influence the ranking, but it, it probably is going to at the end of the day. A couple more quick top 10 uh, notes here in terms of teams ranking the top 10. Uh, welcome back, Oregon State. Uh, number six here first, um, it says here first, uh, ranked class since 2016. Um, that being a famous class, Adley Rutschman was in it. And if you do the math, a couple of years later, that worked out pretty well for the Beavers. Um, so I'd say that's another positive step. We, we've talked a lot about Oregon State on this show, and, and understandably so. Because I'm really into Oregon State right now. And this yeah. class is part of it. Like I, 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 it could be fifth. You know, you, I might look at that. I kept going back and forth with it on Tennessee. Ultimately, I just decided Maddox Burns was kind of a separator, but uh, maybe they should be five. You know, there, there's a real case for that. Uh, Chase Burns, I will. I meant to clean that up. That's actually, I'm Maddox glad you said Bruns, it again. Yeah. Yes, Maddox Bruns <laughs> was committed to Mississippi State, and I was very concerned that both he and Chase Burns were going to make it to school, and I was never going to be able to figure them out. And yet, here it is they Maddox Bruns signed, and I still can't keep them straight. It got you, it got you either way. 
uh, yeah, Maddox Bren. Shout out to UMS Wright Prep. Um, but yeah, so um, what were we talking? Oh, Oregon State. But yeah, just kind of a, there's just been a lot going on in that program. We've detailed it in the past. You know, we don't have to relitigate all of it, but just kind of a, with their head coaching situation and not knowing what to expect. And then last year in 2020, they weren't very good. In 2021, they really bounced back, but we still kind of didn't know what to make of them. And now they're recruiting really well. So they just continue to be a really fascinating program, but it, it does seem like things are, are trending in a, in a very, very positive direction for them. They come in at number six. Uh, number nine is Duke. Um, I think people who are at least paying some attention to this will recognize that Alex Mooney is a big part of that. I think there was a lot made, understandably so, of him choosing to go to Duke rather than begin his professional career. Uh, you know, he's a top 100, top 75 uh, BA 500 prospect who is at Duke. Um, that's a new thing for Duke. Having a recruiting class ranked this high is a new thing for Duke. Um, my, my curiosity that I would pose to you is what is in this class other than Alex Mooney, because ultimately that's going to, that's going to have a lot of bearing on what this class ends up being. Alex Mooney might be a superstar, but obviously there'll need to be more to it than that. If, if this group is going to live up, to its potential, but those are two programs. Oregon State obviously is now a blue blood in college baseball. But I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, and you haven't been doing this for that long, but you have, you know, you've been looking over the historical data as well. You know, Oregon State, um, you know, I don't really associate them with being a program even in their best years that have necessarily had like these standout recruiting classes. They've tended to be kind of a development program. Um, and Duke certainly just because they have, don't have a lot of history have not been in this position, but there they are at six and nine in the, in the top 10 of these rankings. Yeah. Duke has never had a class ranked this high Oregon state. You got to go back, uh, to, uh, 2013, they were number five and 2007, they were number three. Uh, those are the only classes that have been higher than this one. Obviously, uh, whiffed on how good the 2015 class that had Madrigal and Grenier and Larnick should have been re-ranked class. That was number two. It was number 12 at the time. So not, not, not terribly uh, raw on my part, but also like uh, that, that class is probably the class that everyone is at Oregon state is trying to live up to for the end of time now. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what they can do. I, I, also notably on Oregon State, before I go on to Duke, they, I mean, they have some good draft prospects in it. Jacob Kamatz uh, coming from um, uh, New Mexico, Mason Guerra, uh, the Oregon Gatorade player of the year. He's a shortstop. Kamatz is a, is a pitcher. Those guys uh, were, were top 200 types and, and Tyree Reed, uh, outfielder with all kinds of, of pedigree played for USA baseball going back to like 15U and um, had some first round consideration. Like if you were talking about him this time last year, just he was limited by some injuries this spring kind of fell out of that, but is going to be very good for them. But the player that I'm maybe most intrigued by just because of what, like those players are all very good. I'm intrigued by them, but Travis Bazanza. Pisana, excuse me, uh, is an Australian native, so he was not eligible for the to Pro Bowl. He would have signed as an international player. He came over here this summer, uh, played in the West Coast League, broke the West Coast League's at, uh, single season record for batting average, uh, hit 429. The previous record was held by Austin Shenton, who is now a prospect in the Rays system. Um, 
And he did that as like an 18 year old adjusting to living in America. So he is super intriguing to me. Just it's a top of the order kind of hitter, um, middle infielder. I just, we don't see many players like taking his path into college baseball. So I'm fascinated by that. And then also by the fact that he's coming off of this incredible summer uh, playing in the West coast league. So that this class I think has a real chance to be really good and make me look dumb for not putting it into the top five already, but I'm, I'm excited by that. Um, And then you look at Duke and I'm going to throw Wake Forest into this. Sorry, Duke. Like you're just, that these two things are too similar. Wake Forest has never had a top 25 class. We're now leaving the, the top 10. Wake Forest is number 13, Duke number nine. They both did the, uh, they're both similar, both both in the school's profile and kind of similar spots in the rankings. And also how they got there. Um, you mentioned Mooney for Duke. He's a Michigan prep uh, middle infielder, could play shortstop for Duke as soon as this year, but very athletic. Uh, instant impact. Jonathan Santucci is probably the other one that people are, are most excited about there. He's got two-way ability as an outfielder and a left-hander, probably more likely to make the impact as a position player. Uh, but excited about that, excited about some of the arms, Ryan Higgins, Fran Shell, um, Jimmy Romano, who maybe could fill a Jack Lebowski type role for Duke as a two-way player. Uh, and then you look at Wake Forest, and, and so Duke ranked as high as it is in part by getting Mooney to campus. Wake Forest gets Josh Hartle, one of the top prep lefties in this draft class, uh, to campus. He removed his name from the draft. He was a top 50 prospect, first-round consideration. Like I think he was in the 30s when he removed himself from the draft, and therefore we removed him from the 500. And this is Wake Forest doing that. Like now Wake Forest has had a first round pick as a pitcher in back-to-back years. So, you know, we understand what they do in terms of pitching development, the investment they've made in terms of pitching facilities. And you're seeing that pay off, but now you're also seeing a payoff in that you get a guy like Josh Hartle who could reasonably have, have been a, a top 50 draft pick this year, maybe a top 30, you know, as a first rounder say, no, I want to go to Wake Forest. And when you think about where that program has come from, um, you know, there's so many things over the, in recent years that they've, achievements they've hit, they've been like, wow, look at how far Wake Forest is coming, you know, especially making that super regional. And I just feel like getting to be this level for, for like prime recruits, not recruits that you're necessarily going to have to to develop into being first rounders, but here's a guy that was already being thought of at that level. That's saying, "Now I want to go there and get even better." Yeah, it's been a what a journey for Wake Forest over the last several years because it, it both feels like just yesterday and also 15 years ago that they were in that super regional. They had a you know a highly touted group of players come in immediately like, after that. It's not super... their fault that COVID happened because that's part of the reason it feels like it was so long ago. True. And everything feels like it was so long ago. That is a great point by you. But, you know, they, they have this really highly touted group and talented group of players. Like, I don't mean to disparage them, like productive players the last few years in the program. And it just didn't amount to much winning, you know? Um, and so it was this kind of 
team that every year, you know, you look at them and you, you can kind of squint and, and be like, man, you know, there, there's something here and it just never quite came together. Um, so I'll be fascinated to see what this next group does. And it, you know, there's a, a pretty talented group of guys on campus right now, led by Brock Wilkin, Eric Gadler, uh, guys like that. And then you add this group to it should be um, just a fascinating team in, in, in Winston-Salem um, moving forward. I will um, do a thing now where I will open it up. So we've got some some teams that we we often see in this part um, of, of the recruiting rankings are ranked relatively high, whether you talk about uh, no shots, didn't see state at 11. It's, it's a good class. They've got some good transfers coming in. That's a, a fascinating team. But, um, you know, TCU comes in at, at 12, LSU is 14, Georgia 15, South Carolina 16. Um, you know, Florida State comes in at 19, Louisville at 20. Um, are there any classes there that have, have moved, whether it was, hey, this team really suffered some attrition in the draft or teams that made late movement in a positive direction where you kind of reevaluated things or they came to the draft better than you thought? Because there are some blue bloody type of teams that frankly, while these are good classes, are more teams that are used to having more like top 10 classes. So I'm kind of curious about the, the movement you might have seen there. Yeah, LSU and TC are probably the two biggest movers, and they're going in opposite directions. LSU is a top five class on signing day, and you might say like, oh, well, things happen when you change coaches, and maybe that's why. No, they, uh, they just, the, the top four players like got lopped off to, to go to the draft. Uh, and now maybe some of that was, and I haven't read any of their quotes, maybe some of that was like, oh, well, if Palmineri is not there, like that was who I, like I dreamed for, of playing for Palmineri. Um, but that that's what happened to them. They got hit hard in the draft. And, um, I don't think anyone's going to cry for LSU when you see what they did in the transfer portal. So it's a good recruiting class that if you were to include their transfers would be outstanding. So, uh, that's kind of what happened there. They're hitting LSU's new staff is definitely out there hitting it hard in future years, uh, future recruiting classes, Jay Johnson, Dan Fitzgerald, Jason Kelly, all really good recruiters. Uh, so they're, they're definitely out there. They're hitting it. But, uh, you know, when you inherit a job as late as they did and the drafts as late as it is, you know, it's always hard to kind of remake a recruiting class if you do get hit hard in the draft. And so they kind of went about that through the transfer portal rather than anything else. And so that's why they slipped like 10 spots to, to 14 here. TCU, on the other hand, I did not rank on signing day. And maybe that was a mistake on my part. Um, maybe, you know, they, they, I do know TCU came through the draft really well. They wound up losing, I think it was two recruits, one on the high school side, one on the junior college side. Uh, but to have kept that class together as well as they did through a coaching change is incredibly impressive. Now, obviously there is a lot of stability still at TCU. A lot of, you know, a lot of things stayed the same, even though Jim Schlossnick left. Uh, Kirk Sarlus was just promoted to head coach. Bill Moziello is still there. So a lot of the guys that the the recruits would have been used to talking to and were expecting to, to work with, they are still there at TCU. And so maybe that helped them keep things as stable as they were able to through the draft. And they wind up with some really good players here. Thomas DeLandry is a top 150 player in the BA 500, one of the toolsiest freshmen in the country he's uh just got all all kinds of athleticism and, and tools and obviously he's going to need to refine his game a little bit if 
you know, we're, we're talking about him that way and, and he didn't get drafted, uh, but everything is there for, for them to work with. And they've got some exciting pitchers coming in. Cademan Parker um, has, is, is really good now and has projection. That's kind of, you know, the, the perfect kind of college pitcher good enough to have success now, but the projection to become like a frontline starter in a couple of years, like that, that's one of the, the, just the sweet spots to hit uh, in, in this recruiting stuff. I feel like I can Gray Thomas is, has this funky delivery. It's a totally unique look out there uh, as a side armor. So I be very interested to see how uh, TCU and Kirk Sarlus use him. And Hunter Holland is a, a left-hander who spent one season at San Jack, got drafted in the 15th round, but decided he wanted to come uh, to TCU as opposed to going to pro ball. So again, just adding to that pitching staff. And um, we did not have Hunter Teplansky ranked in the, the 500 or Logan Maxwell. Uh, but I think both of those guys on the position player side, Teplansky as a shortstop and Maxwell as an outfielder, A, could have fit in the 500. One of the things you learn about doing the 500 is that the, the difference between a player in the 400s and a, the 500s is is not as great as putting a number next to their names makes it appear. I think both of those those players could have fit in a 500 or if we'd expanded to 600, maybe they would have been there. Uh, but to get those guys, I, I think is is significant. And, and Teplansky, uh, especially as, as a middle infielder, I mean, you can never have enough of those guys. So I, 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 I like what TCU was able to put together. And I think that's, you know, as you... You know, as Kirk Sarlus tries to build momentum now, as as he adjusts to, to being a head coach, I think he's got a lot of intriguing pieces to to work with here. You mentioned Dan Fitzgerald being at LSU now is, is an excellent recruiter, and I think you can look at the team ranked number eighteen here in Dallas Baptist and, and see that that's the case because his fingerprints are all over this class. And um, you know, big shoes to fill for Cliff Pennington, who is highly thought of. Um, you know, Texas A&M legend Cliff Pennington now in, in the recruiting coordinator role at DBU, a program that in a lot of ways, this is not to underplay the, the, the skill the recruiters have, but a program that sells itself to a certain player, I think now at this point that, that, that the success they've had is, is to a level now where I think they they do have kind of a um, some built-in recruiting advantages they're able to, to take advantage of. And so here they have a number 18 recruiting class. So I'd be curious, um, you know, where this kind of feels like to you among classes from non-power conferences, like not, you know, non-Big West division, I guess I would say. Um, because this is a program that, you know, as we talked about before, that is just kind of knocking on the door. And Jim Slosnagel, to repeat something we've said a few times, you know, said it's an Omaha program that hasn't gotten there yet. There's an assumption about their ability to get there. Um, perhaps this class uh, is, is a part of it. Um, certainly it's positive momentum. I assume that, you know, um, I assume this is the first time they've been a top 25 class. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, that's correct. Yeah. So that certainly is, is another uh, piece of that puzzle put together and another step in that direction. Um, but I, you know, not knowing how often this type of thing happens, it would be easy. I think in, in my position to look at it and say, well, you know, this is, this is a groundbreaking thing for this program. So bigger steps forward are in the offing when, when maybe perhaps it, it, it is a step in that direction, but maybe perhaps it's more common than I realized for a, a team to put up a class like this. And then maybe it doesn't necessarily always lead to that next thing. 
Yeah, I think it happens about once a year that we get a team like this. Um, you know, BYU a couple of years ago, ranked number 25. Um, you know, we've seen FIU in the this kind of range a few times under Mervell Melendez. Um, obviously, neither of those has really truly popped the way that either of those programs would have preferred it to happen. And uh, you can look at COVID as some of the reason why that might have happened at BYU. Obviously, things have been this is that class's junior year so we'll uh we'll see what what comes of that in the next couple of years but sometimes it also does it also is very meaningful you know UCSB uh coming off of its first Omaha appearance spent a couple of years in this range you know they've continued to be pretty good um and while Washington is not um, you know, they are a, a, a power conference program, but, you know, they broke through ahead of, in, in 2015, they broke through with the number 15 class. It was the first time UW had had, had a, a top 25 class and uh, they build on that the next year with a, a, another highly ranked class. I think it was number nine. And then they wound up in Omaha a, a couple of years later. So, you know, sometimes things like that happen. I guess I should also shout out East Carolina, um, couple years ago stacked top 20 class or top 25 classes in this range and you saw how close they got to Omaha um with Brickhouse and Packard leading the way so it uh it could be really meaningful it might not be my guess is with DBU this is going to be meaningful uh because they are they've already won and now you're adding this kind of talent um the interesting thing about this DBU class is, yes, it has some extremely high-end talent. Kevin Basil behind the plate is uh, going to be a really good bat. Uh, Luke Hefner, Dan Hefner's son, is a really advanced shortstop, plays like he's a coach's kid and um, you know should be able to, to step in pretty well. Uh, Ryan Johnson has two-way impact, probably more likely as a as a pitcher, uh, but he's got he's got great stuff projectable. He's kind of the headliner of this group, and uh, but then they also have a whole bunch of really good junior college players, and we've seen how good DBU is at identifying junior college talent, and so they stack a lot of them into this class, and with uh, with that group you know, that should be able to have some immediate needs filled. And I, I think that's important uh, for DBU to be able to build off of, of this season and, and the super regional. I guess the, uh, the last thing I'll uh, specific question I had, and then I'll, I suppose I'll, I'll let you uh, fill in any holes that I, I failed to, uh, to touch on here before I, I wrap up with a, um, as a little tease here for the listeners, I've got a few names I want to put on a, a watch list for our all names team that I, I pulled from these top 25 recruiting rankings. But, um, you know, we have to have a dialogue about USC. Um, we do, I feel like we do this every year. Uh, you know, ranked class last year. Um, just never know quite what to do with USC and, and them having talented recruiting classes because so often with USC, talent has not been the problem. Uh, you just look at, 
their drafted players. Like, you know, that they're always getting guys drafted, even from teams that weren't very good and, and players that frankly weren't necessarily the most productive guys in the world. So talent has been a thing at USC. It just hasn't amounted to too much, but now, you know, maybe 2021 was a little bit of a step back for USC. And again, you look at the players that, that they had on that roster and there, there was some talent there and they showed that in 2020, they were off to a good start. And now they're stacking back-to-back top 25 classes um, under Jason Gill at USC. And, you know, I think maybe it's the, the old school college baseball fan in me that is kind of intrigued by the idea of USC. And, and even if we agree, and I, I think this is safe to assume, if we all agree that USC is never going to be the USC that we saw 40 years ago for a, a, about a million different reasons, we could do a whole episode on. Um, I do think there is still this feeling that, you know, that it should, should amount to more than it has amounted as of late. Um, so perhaps these are positive steps in the right direction. There's really no specific question here. It's just more like, you know, here we are with USC again. Um, and I, I, I'm just excited to see, intrigued to see what it ends up being in 2022 when you combine back-to-back ranked recruiting classes on top of each other with a group that has shown some positive signs over the last couple of years under Coach Gill. So what I'm most interested in this USC group, and I need to spend more time talking to uh, two folks at USC to, to maybe better understand this. And I, I have some ideas about why it might've ended up this way, but they left Southern California a lot for this class. And, you know, you're, you're looking at Eric Hammond, who is a, a big right-hander with, with some upside as the headliner and he's also he's he was a top 100 player in the in the 500 you could make an argument he was the best prep right-hander in texas not in southern california where we would kind of associate like their players mostly coming from usually they went to texas and they went and they got harrison feinberg who's this incredible athlete uh who runs around the outfield really well from connecticut and they went and they got Matt Keating, who should be a uh, you know back end of the bullpen guy who could also hit for them from the Nebraska Junior College ranks. And you know, so some of this is because I, Ted Silva, now USC's pitching coach and, and recruiting coordinator, be, because he came to USC from Nebraska, so he has some of these different kind of, of recruiting relationships and, and experience recruiting different areas than, you know, a staff that is just Southern California based. So that's happening. And, but, you know, it, it is interesting that they're, they're casting a, a pretty wide net. We don't see that very often on the West coast, uh, but you can have success doing it. And if this group pops, you know, maybe that, maybe they're, they're going to be able to hit on something going forward. Um, but I, I'll be interested to see how, how this all comes together. I think that they've got some intriguing players here, but you're right. Like that's never really been USC's problem. They're they've often had ranked recruiting classes often in this range or a little lower. And, you know, they've continued to have the the ups and downs on the field that they've had. So it's going to be about how well they can, you know, bring on board these guys, you know, bring them into their system, coach them up. Uh, but I mean, you, you look at Hammond and, and he has, he has the ability to become a, a big time piece in their rotation going forward. 
uh, Caden Huber made a, made a jump this year as, as a hitter. Um, probably fits best at third base. Could be a really good player for them as well. Ranked just outside the 200 uh, in terms of the draft prospects. So I, I like what they're they're putting together. But yeah, at this point, I, I would like to see it the next step now be made. And look, I, Jason Gill hasn't been there very long. Obviously, he you know, things have been confused in terms of like, it just hasn't been a clean kind of off season. Um, so we'll, we'll see what they can do now going into uh, 2022. It does make some, that is interesting. I hadn't noticed the the kind of diversity and geography of this recruiting class for, for USC. And it doesn't make some sense. I mean, there's, you know, highly it's academic a big brand for sure. And, and highly academic national brand programs often recruit that way. And, and yes. I know, you know, Stanford does some of that stuff. I mean, you mentioned player from Nebraska, you know, Kyle Peterson, one of Stanford's most famous players the last couple of decades. It was, you know, an Omaha native, you know, uh, you know, Michigan, they're not a private school, but a highly academic school that recruits nationally. Like they do a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, um, Stanford, Vanderbilt, TCU, right. Like these yep. programs are like USC in a lot of ways and they recruit nationally. Miami is kind of trying to get back to that. They went a little insular for a while, but they have a very long history of going to California to recruit. And so I've noticed that Miami's been trying to to widen its base again. And, uh, you know, I mean, these these schools all have huge brands and pretty good academics to sell, great academics in in a lot of those cases that we're mentioning. And so, yeah, there's no reason why USC can't be doing this. It's just, it's a shift. And so I'll be interested to see whether it's uh, a long-term shift or is this a thing that they did because, you know, in, in, in the transition, um, you know, recruiting in California sometimes is even on a more advanced level. Uh, you know, the, the, the timelines are more advanced than in other parts of the country. Is that why this happened? Is it, you know, I, I, I don't have the answers to all of that yet, but I, I will be interested to see uh, how it, how it progresses. All right. So is there anything that I did not ask you that I, that I have uh, failed, that I should have asked you and I, I failed my job as kind of the uh, de facto <laughs> host on this episode, because you've got most of the information here. So is there any gaps that need to be filled in before I hit you with a few names to put on this uh, all names team watch list? Well, I, I think the, there are two things I want to say. One is that Clemson landed the highest ranked player from the BA 500 in Will Taylor. He's an outfielder. You also will be seeing him on the football field this fall. And I get really excited about the two sport guys, but they do come with a little bit of, you know, you, you just need a little bit of caution sometimes because football is a part of what they do. We got very excited when Jerry Neely came to Ole Miss and, you know, yes, COVID is a part of the reason why we haven't seen much of him playing baseball, uh, but we haven't seen much of him playing baseball. and you know, Maurice Hampton at left LSU, you know, like these things happen. Kyler Murray had to transfer from AM for football reasons. So I think Will Taylor's a little more focused on baseball than some of the guys I mentioned, especially Kyler. Um, but what's going to happen with him as a football player also affects what happens with him as a baseball player. That being said, very excited to watch Will Taylor uh, this spring at Clemson. And then the other thing is Nebraska comes in at number 21. Uh, the Huskers 
have not had a ranked recruiting class since 2013. The Will Bolt era continues to get off to a really strong start here. You saw them win the Big Ten this spring. Now they have the top-ranked class, top-ranked recruiting class in the Big Ten, and they do it with two really dynamic players. Drew Christo is a right-hander, was the Nebraska Gatorade Player of the Year. Again, projection combined with present stuff, uh, just the, the perfect kind of college player in a lot of ways. Uh, very excited about what he can become there. And then Chase Mason is this ultra toolsy player from South Dakota. That is, he, he is still incredibly raw though. Um, not surprising for a uh, multi-sport athlete from South Dakota. His development watching that is going to be very interesting. It could be, he could turn into an absolute monster though. Uh, so v- interesting things happening in Lincoln, but I mean, the class is more than those guys. And, and this is a chance though, for Nebraska to, to keep building on, on what they've already accomplished under Will Bolt. As a professional segue to putting players on the all name team watch list, uh, Drew Christo, as you informed me, the son of the magnificently named former Nebraska quarterback, Monty Christo. It's incredible. I mean, just, chef's kiss honestly um but yeah whether it's the sandwich the book you know just a fabulous name so we will use that as a transition into i've got six names here there are certainly more that could have gone on this list but i was trying to keep it tight some of these guys will inevitably end up on the all names team also just a little bit of a um disclaimer here i'm I'm just scrolling through teddy's write-ups of the top 25 so the entire Recruiting classes are not listed here, so inevitably there is a great name or two that I have failed to list here among these that are going on the all-names uh, watch list, but here they are. That said, you had 250 names to choose from because I write up pretty much 10-ish per class. Well, there you go. So that's a pretty good sampling. So I've got six here that really stood out. Like I said, I'm sure there are more um, that I could have put on here. I tried to keep it to just kind of one per one per, no more than one for each each team. I'm looking at you, Duke, because Duke had a number of good names. Um, okay, so uh, first of all, Clemson left-hander Rocco Reed. Uh, just because I feel like we should be making more Roccos. We need more Roccos in the world. That's just a really good name. I imagine he's like a 1950s greaser with a leather jacket, you know, <laughs> Rocco Reed. Uh, Nebraska right-hander Jackson Jelkin. That is J-A-X-O-N, uh, taking the torch and the baton from a Jackson Hallmark. In Nebraska, there's also a Jackson with an X, Jackson Wiggins at Arkansas. Teddy and I talked offline about how that was probably uh, the uh, popularity of the name Jackson, J-A-X-O-N, really must have peaked about 20 years ago with these players who have been in college baseball the last few years. Uh, So that's another one. Uh, Florida State catcher Satchel Norman. Uh, When I was in high school, I asked a girl out one time, and uh, she said no because she was actually more into this guy who went to her church, and his name was Satchel. Um, (laughs) As it turned out, uh, I will try not to hold that against uh, Satchel Norman in his college career, although, you know, I, I'm married now. I think she's actually married now, too, although I don't keep up with her. So it's worked out well for, for both of us. Um, but uh, there's that. Uh, South Carolina outfielder Thaddeus Ector, uh, which sounds like a supervillain in a Marvel movie. Um, I, I want to asterisk that. I think he probably is going by Thad, but we had him as Thaddeus on the 500, and I agree it sounds really cool. So if you're listening, Thad, Maybe keep Thaddeus. Yeah, let that name breathe. Thaddeus Ector. That's just uh, big time supervillain vibes there. Uh, Mississippi State left-hander Pico Cone. 
Uh, he gets in under the Itchy Burt's clause in this. His real first name is William. Um, however, he is listed as Pico. Uh, so the rule is, of course, uh, whatever name you put on the roster is the name we consider for the all names team. So if we've got any players listening, uh, you know, put whatever there, name on the roster that you want to go by so we can consider it. There's somebody, I don't remember who it was, but there was a bear somebody on like the, in a class that I was at least considering for the 25 um, who apparently goes by bear, but like baseball wise may or may not. So well, that, that is whoever you are. That's the one to consider. Yeah. Just put, put whatever name on the, you know, don't be ridiculous with it. You know, if you go by a name though, like put that on there, give us things to consider. So put your, put your nickname there. But I imagine the, the puns with Pico, you know, spicy Pico, uh, things like that are, are endless of course, with the guy named, named Pico. Um, then finally, I mentioned Duke having several to choose from. I went with infielder Tyler Christmas simply because that is my favorite holiday. And that's it. Those are the six names I'm putting on the uh, all names team watch list for this uh, next year. That is, uh, that's a good one for Duke. But yeah, like you said, Duke has, uh, has several out there. Um, so yes, uh, some very intriguing names coming into uh, into college baseball, both in uh, in every sense of that word. So uh, exciting times here uh, as as we get to uh, to get into the the into depth on these recruiting classes. So yeah, check the whole thing out over at baseballamerica.com. I go deep on all of these classes. Like I said, I mean, I wrote up about ten players for. 25 classes a lot of players to uh to read up on and uh kind of get familiar with so check that all out over at baseballamerica.com joe and i will be back with another edition of the baseball america college podcast next week reminder we're going weekly throughout the off season uh so make sure you are subscribed to the baseball america podcast wherever you get your podcasts apple Co- apple podcast stitcher spotify wherever you can uh, you can find us and hit the subscribe button you can follow us on twitter i'm at ted cahill joe is at joe healy ba and again there's plenty to read over at the website baseballamerica.com until next time want to thank you all for listening want to thank you to rap soto for uh, presenting this and every episode of the baseball america college podcast i'm teddy he's joe we'll talk to you next time After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.